Hello and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch, where we engage every square inch of God's world with God's worldview. My name is Robert Cunningham, and sorry for the unexpected week off last week. I did not foresee a global pandemic, but such is the nature of everything right now. Um, Last time we were together, we began discussing the deconversion phenomenon that is uh, taking over our culture, and I left it open-ended with more to say, but I think it's obviously appropriate to take a break from that and talk about the coronavirus. I I won't leave you hanging. We'll get back to that discussion um, that I know many people are um, eager to hear more. But for now, let's talk about what's going on in our world. Specifically, let's talk about the Christian response to what's going on in the world every square inch of God's creation includes viruses. So let's talk about it. Now to get us there, I want to take you through my past week because man, it was a doozy and I learned a ton as I think all of us have. Um, In the span of a couple days, I went from being the guy who was strongly and publicly advocating for Christians to never stop meeting to publicly canceling our worship and urging others to do likewise. And the conclusion of this podcast and the big message I want to get across is going to be that the Christian duty in this hour is to lead the way in quarantining ourselves. To love right now is to isolate, as counterintuitive as that may feel to Christian ethics and ambitions. And I think the best way to get us there is just to take you through my personal journey um, of how I came to these convictions. So, Monday last week, uh, I guess that would be March 9th, everything starts hitting the news. There are rumors that things might have to close eventually, but I don't think any of us could foresee where we are as a society a week later. I certainly couldn't. Um, Tuesday, things are starting to amp up a bit, and even some churches are discussing closure. Now, what you have to understand is that we have a long-standing policy at our church that we don't cancel worship for anything. And in the history of our church, we haven't. I have shoveled my car out of feet of snow to go preach to a nearly empty sanctuary before. And in my mind and in the mind of our leadership, corporate worship is such a high priority that it's just not an option to cancel church services for anything. So I sent out a communication that we're not canceling. You know, take proper precautions. We're going to worship in a way that makes room for social distancing. If you're showing symptoms, don't show up. You, you get the idea. Now, that wasn't out of the ordinary at all last Tuesday. And that's how quickly things have changed. The majority of churches were doing just that. But what happened is that the very next day, on Wednesday, Governor Bashir, in what has proven to be a bold act of preemptive foresight, uh, requested that churches not meet on Sunday. So now, if we are going to meet, we're going to have to go against the governor's request. Now, I don't take civil disobedience lightly. A mark of Christian ethics is a humble submission to the state. Uh, Peter even encouraged Christians to honor the very emperor who was persecuting the church. So the Christian militant attitude against the state is is not fitting the people of God and not something that I want to perpetuate. But at the time, I saw this as one request we just could not honor. Again, you have to understand that a week ago, not meeting for worship was anathema to me, our leadership, and quite frankly to all churches that place a really high value on corporate worship. But now, because the governor made this request the day after our communication, I felt the need to write a second communication to our congregation. And in that, I did my best to honor Governor Bashir, 
explained that our church is eager to help in any way possible, that we would cancel every large gathering at our facility, but we simply could not cancel our worship services. And then I did my best to explain this conviction of our church, and it's a conviction I still hold to. And then things got crazy. The communication goes viral, no pun intended, ends up in the New York Times, which I don't fault them for at all. It was my communication. If I didn't want it read, I shouldn't have written it. But all of a sudden, I find myself in the midst of a fierce divide in our church as well. I dragged our church into it. Now, here's the thing you have to understand. It was not the internet trolls that was burdening me. I mean this with all sincerity. I've, I've been writing publicly for a while now, and I have learned, very early I learned, to ignore what I call the comment section demographic of society. I know people were tweeting hateful things. I know people were ranting on Facebook about me and our church, but I mean this with all sincerity. I don't care. If I cared about stuff, I promise you I would not be doing the public theology things that I do. Here's what quickly became a concern to me. Not the people who disagreed with me, but the people who agreed with me. The Christian militant crowd who weaponized my words in a way I would never want them to be used. I I was troubled by those who were using my communication to, it seemed to me, stick it to Governor Bashir and obstinately yell at the world that we're never shutting our doors. Um, My thoughts as talking points of divisiveness, this is what started to overwhelm me. And so this is what I did as our church started to receive all this attention. And there are larger churches in our city, much larger churches than ours, that were still planning on meeting at this point as well. But because I'm cursed with an inability to just write a daggum simple email, Robert, and instead I have to turn it into a theological treatise of conviction. I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning. But because our communication went viral, the eyes are now upon TCPC even more so than some of the larger churches. And so this is what I did. I cut out all the noise and gave all of this some serious thought and prayer to see, am I missing something? Now, here's the thing, friends. Convictions, principles, bold stances, these are all good and noble things. But only, only if you are willing to do something that seems our culture is increasingly unwilling to do. Change your mind. Of course, there are areas of orthodoxy that deserve a fixed conviction. But when you take non-essentials, and canonize them as unmovable convictions, that's when you get in trouble. Now, at the time, I viewed gathering for worship as an essential, not a non-essential, and I still do. But I did have to ask, am I missing something here? And there were three things that helped me see that I wasn't seeing things rightly. And let me take you through each of those in hope of convincing you in my newfound uh, fervent convictions and applications. As, as, as fervent as I was before about the need to keep meeting together, I'm, I now want to be the guy who uh, fervently undoes everything I said before and pleads with you to take this seriously. So let me take you through the process of how I got there. First, God has blessed me with an elder at our church who also happens to be an infectious disease expert. Very convenient right now. Dr. Charles Kennedy. Now, that's the guy I want to listen to, someone who shares my deep convictions about worship and has knowledge on the issue that I don't have. Pastors need to resist the temptation in these days of thinking they are experts because they have access to Google. So I actually turned to an expert. 
I knew that if Charlie, who, who shares my high view of worship, suggested we cancel services, that would mean something significant. And that's what happened. I noticed a change in him on Wednesday of last week when he suggested we close both our school and church. Now, school's easy. We don't have deeply held convictions about being together at school. We can do that remotely. But he also suggested we close church services. And here's the thing about Charlie that I appreciate. He said, this is my professional medical opinion, but I know that you have to lead with your professional pastoral opinion meaning he recognized that there is more to all of this than simply medicine and science. So now I took his medical opinion and I did my own research and processing. First, I turned to history. So that's the second thing. So Charlie, Charlie was the first thing that helped me see something different here. And then second, I turned to history. This is unprecedented times for us, but not for history. How have Christians of the past responded to pandemics? I knew the response to persecution. That one's easy. You can imprison us, you can kill us, but Jesus is Lord and we're going to worship him together. But I suspected that the fallacy in my thinking was that I was applying Christian persecution to viral pandemic. Those are not apples to apples. And so I researched the church's response to pandemics specifically. Now, what's particularly compelling is that shortly after Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door and sparked the Reformation, uh, the bubonic plague showed up in his hometown of Wittenberg. Now, the Black Plague was already known for its devastation of Europe, and so there was great panic in Wittenberg. And in their panic, a lot of people were looking to Luther for answers. So in response, Luther wrote a public communication entitled, Whether One May Flee a Deadly Plague. And there's a lot of wisdom to glean from Luther's perspective. The whole thing is worth a read, but there's one quote in particular that's getting a lot of attention on social media and people are sharing a lot. This is what Luther says. Use medicine, take potions, even though reformers were into essential oils, apparently. (laughs) Take potions, Uh, fumigate house, yard, and street. Shun persons and places wherever your neighbor does not need your presence or has recovered. And act like a man who wants to help put out the burning city. What else is the epidemic but a fire which instead of consuming wood and straw devours life and body? You ought to think this way. I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, and I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my death or the death of others. Long quote short, Luther is arguing for common sense social distancing and trusting the medical community. Exactly what we're being asked to do right now. But it's the way the quote ends that I think has Christians struggling right now. You see, the quote ends, and I've even noticed on social media some people leaving out how this ends because it doesn't fit the narrative. The quote ends with this, if my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely. You see, this is the Christian instinct to love at whatever cost there is. If if our neighbor needs me, then forget your social distancing. I'm going to help. And that spirit is right. 
That's what Luther was arguing for and what scripture would affirm. The church has always been known as the people who run toward, not away from, the leprous, for example. Those who stepped in to care for the diseased people that have been cast off by society. This is what we've been known for throughout our history. Shouldn't that be our response now? Yes and no. The key is that Christians have always been those who cared for those who no one else cared for. So yes, if we were living in an undeveloped world with no modern medicine and professionals, then yep, we would need to fill the gap for the sick and dying. But that's not where God has us. What I found most compelling about Luther's thoughts is the stuff not getting shared on social media. Luther holds the balance of prioritizing neighbor love above all else and common sense situational application. So, for instance, we see his primacy of neighbor love when he says things like this. If someone is weak and fearful, let him flee in God's name as long as he does not neglect his duty toward his neighbor. So he's saying, yes, it's appropriate to care for your own well-being and flee this plague so long as that doesn't mean you're neglecting your duty toward your neighbor. Translation, your duty to neighbor is more important than your health. And then he even goes so far as to say this. Anyone who does not care for his neighbor but forsakes him and leaves him to his misfortune becomes a murderer in the sight of God. He's saying to forsake your neighbor in this hour is akin to murder. Very strong words, but words that I think are consistent with the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. But at the same time, Luther demonstrates this kind of nuanced common sense. He says this, If my neighbor's house is on fire... Love compels me to run to help him extinguish the flames. If there are enough other people around to put the fire out, I may either go home or remain to help. If my neighbor falls into the water or into a pit, I dare not turn away, but must hurry to help him as best I can. If there are others to do it, I am released. You know what he's saying there? You have to love your neighbor and you have to use common sense. Luther does not have a martyr's complex when he views the Christian faith. He doesn't view us as Christian superheroes, brazenly going about, thinking that we can save the day. We're just humble servants of our neighbors, meeting whatever needs we can. And then, in what I think is the most compelling part of Luther's writings on this issue, he literally applies all of this to our current situation. Listen to this. He says, It would be well where there is such an efficient government in cities and states to maintain municipal homes and hospitals staffed with people to take care of the sick so that patients from private homes can be sent there, hospices, hospitals, and infirmaries, so that it should not be necessary for every citizen to maintain a hospital in our own home. That would indeed be fine, commendable, and a Christian arrangement to which everyone should offer generous help and contributions. Where there are no such institutions, and they exist only in a few places, we must give hospital care and be nurses for one another. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying, wouldn't it be great if we had a world of robust medical care, with hospitals that were fully staffed with people whose job was to care for the sick, places where people from their homes could actually be sent there for care? Boy, could you imagine such a world? But Luther says, alas, it's not our reality, so we need to turn our homes into hospitals and be nurses for one another. It's almost comical, because he's literally dreaming of the world we now have. 
I think Luther would laugh at us wrestling with the Christian response to this pandemic should be. I think he said, you idiots, you have hospitals, doctors, nurses, scientists, labs, technology, National Guard, everything 99% of human history could only dream of, and you're wondering what to do? You fools, do what they tell you to do. And more than that, support them in any and every way you can. I like how Luther says, such a scenario would be amazing, and were it so, every Christian should offer generous help and contributions. He's saying, wouldn't it be great if the Christians didn't have to be nurses with their homes as hospitals and instead just had to generously provide support and help to the professionals? Well, that's us. That's what we're called to do, everything we can to support the medical community in this great hour of need. And how many more articles do we need to read? How many more press conferences do we need to listen to before we heed their plead to avoid the spike that would overwhelm our hospitals and medical providers and do everything we can to flatten the curve? That's it. Right now, we do everything in our power to flatten the curve to make it easier on the professionals. That's what it means to love your neighbor in a 21st century pandemic. Even at the cost of in-person corporate worship? Yes, even worship gatherings. To Luther, and certainly church history, that would probably be taking it too far. And he even says in his writings to keep coming for word and sacrament, especially with death all around us. For those outside looking in on pastors and churches agonizing over the decision to cancel services, you have to understand that for us, according to our worldview and deeply held convictions, this is like a death to us. There is nothing we value more than gathering with God's people in worship. And so, it may seem like no big deal to you, but it's a huge deal to Christians. But as I applied Luther's common sense applications to our situation, I feel like we must consider not just modern medical advancements, but technological advancements as well. I just have to think that if ministers in the time of the plague had the technology to lead their flock in worship like we did this past Sunday, imperfect though it may be, that they would affirm the use of that technology in order to love our neighbors. But no matter, I didn't come to this decision through church history or even the counsel of a professional doctor, um, even though I'm pretty much, not pretty much, I'm listening to everything Charlie says and doing it. But at the end of the day, it was Jesus himself where I turned for this. I didn't get much sleep Wednesday night. And early on Thursday morning, there was one passage I just could not get out of my mind. It was as close to um, God speaking to a Presbyterian as we're comfortable with. (laughs) It was when Jesus made the choice to break the Sabbath customs. According to the strict customs surrounding the Sabbath, it was unlawful to do any work, including even helping someone. Well, Jesus breaks what was customary in order to heal a man. They're indignant with him for not keeping the tradition. And this was his response. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? He chose to break their customs to do good and save life. And that was the biblical connection that I had never considered. I'm not comparing corporate worship to pharisaical restrictions with the Sabbath. That's not the point. The point is I can never imagine a scenario 
where gathering together for worship in our customary fashion wouldn't be good, wouldn't lead to life. But such is the unconventional nature of this moment in history. Make no mistake, gathering together right now could very well lead to the death of our neighbors. Or to state it positively, would probably be better. The reality is that by not gathering, we are choosing to save the lives of our neighbors. Now the good news is we live in a day that enables us to worship together online, albeit imperfectly and deficiently. It is no doubt breaking with quote-unquote customs, at least in our tradition it is. And in our case, we are breaking with a policy we have never broken before. But according to Jesus, to break with custom in order to save life lawfully honors the meaning of the Lord's day. And of course, this fits with the example of Jesus himself. Talk about breaking with custom in order to save life. (laughs) Trinitarian joy and fellowship and eternal custom, quote-unquote. You theological nerds, don't don't you nitpick this. But this is the reality for all eternity. And then the Son of God doing what is unfathomable, unimaginable, becoming man, embracing a cross to save not just his neighbors, but his very enemies. Is it lawful to break with custom to save life? Jesus himself has answered that question with a definitive yes. And so through prayer and contemplation, historical experts, modern medical experts, and ultimately Jesus, in the span of 24 hours, I went from publicly declaring the church will never shut her doors to asking our leadership of the church to do just that. Now, application. To my Christian friends and the greater point of this podcast, if we can cancel church services, surely you can cancel your plans. I want to take up the challenge issued by White House Coronavirus uh, Response Coordinator Dr. Deborah Burks. And there was this really uh, poignant moment in one of the press conferences where Dr. Burks essentially was pleading with millennials and Gen Z folks to take this seriously, all the while admitting that she wasn't a good communicator um, with this generation in particular and felt unable to get the message across in a compelling way. And so she literally asked the public for help in uh, reaffirming this message. So I want to do my part to help her because this is the demographic that listens to this podcast the most. I'm just going to assume that Gen X, certainly boomers, are taking this seriously. It's the millennials and Gen Z friends that we really need to get on board and to do so quickly. Uh, So here's my plea. You are the justice generation, and it's awesome. I know this much. You want to make the world a better place. This is your unending passion, racial injustice, economic injustice, human trafficking injustice, and on and on the causes go. And millennial Gen Z Christians, thank you for reorienting the Christian faith away from the exclusively vertical personal relationship with Jesus thing and recovering the horizontal application of love thy neighbor. All of this is beautiful and you should be commended. But now it is time to practice what you rightfully preach. This is an issue of justice, friends. And you literally are the determining factor. That's not my unprofessional opinion. That's Dr. Kennedy's professional opinion. Direct quote from him to me. 
The biggest threat is not the patients we're treating or positive cases we know of. The biggest threat is the young asymptomatic population who are carrying this virus but don't know it and spreading it to the general population. Friends, you are the generation that will determine how this is going to go down. Will you choose to do what is just and embrace the inconveniences of love? Will you fight for your neighbor's life? We don't need you to storm the beaches of Normandy. A generation was asked to do it, and they did it. We need you to stay home. This, of course, could die the death of many qualifications that I'm, I'm just going to assume you know what I'm not saying here. I know many of you are fearing financial repercussions, and you just can't work from home. I know there are circumstances that force you out of your home that you cannot avoid, and unless there's just a total government shutdown of everything, you can navigate those situations with the best possible social distancing. And I also know of your eagerness to help right now, to donate food, to meet the needs of the city, to serve in any way you can, because that's what your generation loves to do. And those are all good things, and you should do them bearing in mind proper social distancing. But the harder thing to do is the main thing we need you to do. No bars, no spring breaks, no getting everyone together to have a bachelor watch party. Those who are older millennials, I know locked up in the house with kids ain't easy. Believe me, I've got four of them. I know what it's like. I'm with you in this. But we need you to assume your precious little child is like a petri dish of biowarfare. Keep them contained. Of course, get creative, get them outside, go on walks, throw the ball, but keep those germy hands and snotty noses away from the public. I think you get what I'm saying here. It needs to be the Christians who lead the way in the quarantine efforts until the professionals say otherwise. This is what love looks like right now. And by the way, that's a cost. I'm not trying to minimize what this will mean for you. It's asking an already anxious, depressed, and lonely generation to further isolate themselves. It's not going to be easy. It's one thing to keep yourself sanitized. It's another thing to keep your sanity in the days, weeks, maybe months to come. Get creative, use technology, do what you have to do, but pick up the cross of isolation in order to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's the as yourself that Jesus chooses intentionally to disturb us. There is your paradigm shift for you. What does love look like right now? How are you to live your days like it's your generation that is the most vulnerable to this virus? That would change things, wouldn't it? Immediately, non-essential activity is gone, and you are navigating this world like a virus ninja. That's what we need from you right now. We are pro-life people from the womb to the tomb. And that means the senior population is just as valuable as your generation or our children. So conduct yourself as if this were so, thus fulfilling the law to love your neighbor as yourself. If this is serious enough to cancel church services, this is serious enough to cancel your plans. Thanks for listening. We'll reach back out next week for another episode of Every Square Inch.